Welcome to the Changeboard Future Talent Podcast, our series of exclusive interviews with business leaders and thinkers to uncover their perspectives on the changing world of work. My name is Karen Filfalan, and I'm Changeboard's Deputy Editor. Today, I'm joined by Emma Birchall, Head of Insight and Forecasting at Hotspots Movement. Hotspots Movement is a specialist research consultancy founded by London Business School's Professor Linda Grattan, who Emma works closely with on examining the trends shaping the future of work and how business can adapt to them. With the average life expectancy edging towards 100, Emma examines what this means for society and business. In a world where we may have to work until our 80s, what skills will we need to survive? And how do we ensure we continue to get meaning and purpose in our work? How is technology changing how we work? And how can we ensure people co-create with the robots? And finally, how can business leaders navigate this bewildering future? If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to Changeboard's Future Talent podcast on SoundCloud, Stitcher or iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. Emma, welcome to this uh, Changeboard Future Talent podcast. Um, I thought the easiest place to start would be to perhaps look at um, some of the research that Hotspots does. So for instance, um, the theme you'll be talking about our conference is around the 100-year life. Uh, recent research you guys have spoken about says that someone in Japan would possibly live to 107 if they're born today. Um, can you perhaps set the scene for what this kind of means for, for our society and for our working lives? Absolutely. So I think uh, to start, we always look at that, those statistics around uh, babies born today in Japan will live to around, well, around half of them will live to 107, which is quite startling as a concept sure. to live to that, that age. But first of all, it's not just about young people born today. We're all expecting to live, to far outlive um, our previous generations and the role models we maybe had about how we were going to live our lives. So I certainly, growing up, looked at my dad and my mum and thought, okay, well, you know, that's what I can expect my life to look like. And I think the biggest, ta- the biggest initial takeaway is that doesn't work anymore. Our former role models of what our lives will look like and how we should sequence them, uh, how we should provide for different stages of our life no longer looks feasible when we start thinking about how long we will live. And um, could you expand on that a little bit? So when you say the, the structures of our life, how have we traditionally kind of you know, lived our lives and, and, and how is it changing with this advent of the 100-year life? Um, so if we look at my grandfather, for example, born in the mid-20s. So he was educated till around 19, 20 years of age. He then worked for around 30 years as a teacher and then he predictably retired in his late <laughs> 50s, early 60s. Um, and he did so in lockstep with all the other people in his generation. So broadly, him and his friends went from being educated, transitioning into work, and then finally into retirement. Uh, And that worked because the life expectancy was around 75, 80 uh, for him if he was lucky. So he had uh, maybe 15 years or so to to provide for in retirement. So the systems we have in place, not only in, in organizations, but in terms of our government systems, our social security really were designed for a time when we had relatively short retirement periods at the end of our lives. What we see now, if I look at my my father, for example, so he retired at 62, um, but he's expected to live into his 90s. So that means that of this generation, there's roughly almost a one-to-one ratio of working time to retired mm. time. Now, if we think about that financially, just as a starting point, how on earth do you make that work? <laughs> It's really terrifying. And when we've done the, the numbers on this and a lot of the work on the 100-year life was done uh, in a collaboration with uh, Professor Linda Gratton from sure, the London yeah. Business School and her colleague, Professor Andrew Scott, who's an economist. So it was a fabulous combination of a psychologist and economist coming together <laughs> to see what, how do you make those different angles of your life work really well together? Uh, what does it mean on, on those, both those frontiers? 
what we see is that the saving rates that you'd need to have uh, from the day you start working to the day you retire are something like 20%. Wow. If you wanted to have a one-to-one ratio of working life to retired life. Now, we know that that probably isn't going to happen. I certainly haven't saved 20% of my income from the day I started working. So, first of all, we can see financially that the idea that we can keep adding all of our extra years of life expectancy into that retired leisure time at the end doesn't seem to make sense. From a health and a social point of view, do we want to spend 35 years in retirement? Well, certainly, uh, going back to my father, for example, he is the worst retired person I think I've ever met. Uh, so he retired and now has two jobs instead. So now he is a night manager at a jazz club, his, always his dream beyond the accountancy profession that he went into, and, uh, and volunteers at a theatre in London. So the idea of spending 35 years or so in leisure time on the golf course isn't that inspiring. We need to find other ways to be active, to be productive, to maintain social networks that are so important for our health. And I think just to do a bit of myth busting as well, we tend to have this idea that leisure time is is uniquely and absolutely good for our health. And of course, having leisure time is. Uh, but it's the social connections that work brings with it. The, um, the health implications of being retired for a very long period of time aren't necessarily positive. It's a... Uh, it's, it's important to maintain social engagement. So there's also a social need and a personal need to add value, to have purpose for that, that extended um, period of our life. And do you think people themselves are the ones making this change? Or, as you said, like, 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 your, like your dad, who's, you know, who's retired now and, and, has, and has gone into the jobs himself, or is this at an organisational level that people start to make changes that way? So what we see in terms of how quickly innovation happens within these spheres is that individuals start experimenting first. Organisations, so um, companies that employ us, then then catch up when they start to see enough people um, acting outside of what they had predicted would be that that behaviour. So when they see enough people getting to 65 and not wanting to retire yet, wanting to extend their career within the organisation perhaps, um, but not necessarily continuing to climb the ladder, maybe um, in a different vein, when they see a a critical mass of those people changing their behaviour, changing their decisions, then they start to react. We tend to see governments acting perhaps a bit later yes, because they need a slightly <laughs> larger scale. And um, no government would be, would be very popular for sharing the news about having to work till 75, 80 in terms of re-election. So certainly I think individuals experiment first. We then see corporations and organisations catching up and then governments come a bit further down the line. You, that is, I mean, that is a startling fact, you know, that, that people are going to be working to, to 80. And as you said, no one's talking about it. Are there any other kind of insights from the research that are kind of like that, 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 that we should be aware of and that we should be looking to change how we work? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the biggest insight for me personally was about how you need to manage not only your tangible assets, so your, your finances in a different way, which, we're, which is quite clear. I think it's nice to ha- that we can see clear data, even if it's not the message we want to hear about what this means. We can see in the numbers that that won't work. But the biggest aha moment for me in this research was realising that actually it's not just those tangible assets, but it's the intangible assets that I need to okay. manage better. So what are intangible assets? Well, they are productivity. They're the skills that keep you employable. Uh, they are vitality. So will you have the energy to keep working into, uh, into older years? And then finally, transformations. This one is a really new concept for a lot of people, but the idea that if we're not making just those two transitions from education into work and then from work into retirement, but actually making many more transitions over a much longer working life, how do we get better at making those transitions? So particularly if we look at traditional professions, uh, accountancy, law, 
those in, in previous years and previous generations would have been your profession and your identity for life. You joined as a bookkeeper, and if you climbed the corporate ladder to the very ultimate point, maybe you left as a senior partner or a, or a managing partner of a firm. Um, and that was your identity. So that was nice and stable. You were an accountant. What we'll see much more of, and what I, I completely expect to see in my own working life, is the need to reinvent yourself. Partly because, let's face it, if I'm working for 65 years or so, if I'm not planning really to retire, but to have um, a long and varied working life, I'll want it to be varied. Yeah, no one wants to say work in the same area for, for 60 years, you would have thought. Absolutely, yeah. So you want, to, you want to have that diversity of experience. But also we're seeing technological changes happening in parallel that mean we can't rely on those stable career ladders in the same way that we used to. Uh, and again, going back to uh, accounting and, and legal services, we've seen a lot of, of disruption in career ladders in those areas. So the more routine elements like bookkeeping or paralegal services have been heavily disrupted. So if you were considering that to be a stable, progressive, linear path for the 30 to 35 year uh, career sprint that previous generations um, enjoyed or, or did, then that would no longer would no longer work. We need to be thinking about, okay, how do I maintain skills and keep reskilling over my long working life to stay productive, to stay employable, to stay valuable? How do I maintain my energy? How do I make sure that work is energizing? I take time to recuperate. I don't just wait for retirement to rest. I see leisure and recuperation as a, a thread almost that goes throughout my life. Maybe you take six months out every now and again. Maybe it's um, longer or shorter, but how do I make sure that I'm maintaining my energy reserves? And then finally, am I okay and ready to shift identities, to go from being maybe in my position a researcher to a completely different profession that builds on the same sort of skills in, in the years ahead. And, and that's, that's a really key point for me. I mean, how you know, people might have the desire to move careers or to move areas, to move industries, or to move around. So for someone that's kind of started, maybe someone that's halfway through this journey, someone that's five years into a career and now they're being told, well, actually, you know, some of the skills that you need, some of the jobs that you're doing now, they could be taken over by automation. They could be kind of removed. You need to change. You need to update. It's almost like the digital inclusion idea, you know, that people now need to be more savvy with technology. Mm. How do we organizationally kind of provide that for people? What sort of skills, what sort of training can we help to, to, get, to help people move around? Yeah, so I start with the concept of a job. Okay. So we focus particularly in, in the transition from education to employment about getting a job. What are the skills you need for that job? And to be more future-proofed in our approach, we need to think a lot more about what are the skills that we need to curate over our lifetimes that are valuable. How do we con uh, continually upgrade them? Not just so that we, we can fulfill a job description or the next rung of the ladder in terms of, of job requirements, but actually what are the skills I'm building and where can they be applied? So much less linked to the specific job I'm doing, perhaps more linked to the cluster of people with also a similar skill set. So um, am I a good communicator? Do I have strong research skills? Do I have the ability to convert that research into insights? Rather than uh, am I a research assistant at this particular organization? Sure. Because of course, if you start looking at it in terms of skill sets, then suddenly those three skill sets that I mentioned there, I can already think of a few different jobs that they could they could be applied to um, alongside the, f the most obvious, which is a research, um, research position. So from the individual level, I think it's thinking much more about what the skills I'm building, what are the capabilities I'm building, what am I good at and what do I enjoy? Because of course you need to have the motivation to learn. For an organizational standpoint, it's again thinking more flexibly in terms of what progression looks like in an organization. Okay. And I think this comes partly from 
what we've just talked about from the need to to build our skills continuously over that, that longer working life, but also taking into account what individuals themselves need and want from work and how that's changing. You know, the up or out model doesn't work for everyone. However, there are very few alternatives to it in most organizations. Staying at the same level for a long time, status-wise, isn't perceived necessarily as a positive thing. It may not even be an option. You know, if you stay at a level for a certain period of time in some organizations, you start to become managed out. How do we, as organizations, create more uh, horizontal moves um, across different levels. How do we enable people to be skilled in completely different parts of the business um, so that they build those different skill sets? And how do we clearly signal that that is a route to success, a route to progression in just a different path? Um, so I think there are a couple of areas there. And actually Japanese companies are, are, have a particularly interesting approach to this because of the lifetime employment scenario that still operates in, in a lot of organizations um, in Japan. So the idea of, um, okay, well, once if, if automation means that we don't need your job anymore, you won't work here anymore. That's not as much of an option for a lot of traditional Japanese sure. companies. Okay. So <laughs> they've had to be much more creative in terms of thinking about those lateral moves and how they... they um, uh, is there anything particular they've done that you can kind of share or that's different to how, how we do things here? Uh, I think just an openness to, to moving in different directions throughout the organization. And again, with the conglomerate models, they might have a slight advantage there, but it's possible to move into different sections of the organization rather than, than to be very singularly aligned with my company is a, a technology company, for sure. example. Therefore, I will go from programmer to senior programmer um, and so on. But actually to think, oh, my company has got a technology arm and, uh, and perhaps a retail arm and various other, other elements that, that bring in that, that flexibility as a concept quite early on. And so it's, it's almost like, we, as you said, we kind of need to focus more on the human skills side of things rather than technical side. Um, how do people measure that though? Because there's no kind of employability skills framework. There's no kind of way of actually measuring how well people do. I mean, there's, you know, how do people show their leadership skills? Young people particularly often find it hard to kind of show those kind of areas. Yeah, it, fantastic question. And that's something that we've really focused on at Hotspots Movement okay. in the last few years is to try and bring the rigor that we apply to our finances, perhaps, sure. <laughs> to how we think about those intangible assets of productivity, vitality and transformation. So it's always really clear to me whether I'm drawing down on my bank account or building it up. It's very uh, blindingly and painfully obvious. <laughs> um, but is it, is it as obvious when we're doing the same with our intangible assets? So we've been experimenting with some different frameworks um, and surveys that help people understand the choices they're making and the consequences. And our premise isn't that at every point in your life you need to be building your productivity and vitality and transformation. That sounds like a big ask. How can you be accelerating in your career, which is what you might need in terms of building your productivity, and at the same time having all this leisure time that needs that to recuperate, uh, and at the same time building these networks for your transformation. So it's, it's not that we have to be doing all those things at the same time, but being much more conscious about the decisions we're making. So it's really easy, particularly in, in a, a corporate world, to get caught up in the pace of life, okay. to get caught up in, in the predetermined uh, ideas of success being a, a continual upward progression. But taking stock of how how, for example, have I used my time over the last six months on average? If I look back, we can all look back at our, our diaries, our outlooks, and um, I think, okay, God, if, if I'm being honest with myself, I haven't seen a lot of my friends for a while, as an example. Um, what does that mean for what my life will look like in five or ten years' time? When I have to make a transition out of this role or into a different part of my life, who will be supporting me if I've actually let go of some of those friendships? So perhaps, okay, if you've had a, a particularly intensive work period, are you then planning for 
a time when you're going to dial that down and dial up the recuperation, dial up the, the time to spend with family and friends. The same with learning, actually. So we, we ask people very simple questions about how much time do you spend learning new material and how much of that material is outside of your core competency. Okay. So continuing to learn more and more about your current role is very useful. But if, if you do find elements of that role become automated, then you're pretty much stuck in, in one area. Having that curiosity about how much am I experimenting with different fields? Do I know people in other industries and other fields? Or has my network become really quite isolated? Which I think really happens to a lot of us over our careers. We start out at university and we've got friends in 15 other courses and we've got psychologist friends and geographers and, and all sorts. And then 10 years into our career, we find out that all of our friends are pretty much versions of us, <laughs> <laughs> which is very comforting but, um, and makes for, um, some, for some nice conversations. And they're very important because they are very key to our success. However, we need to have other people in our lives that are enabling us to get insight into other industries, that role model what our possible future selves could look like that might be different. Okay. And I just want to move on slightly to, to perhaps some more, um, for our audience, perhaps the HR leader sort of area. Mm-hmm. You said that changes now in business mean that people can no longer really generalise about their workforce. It's, it's more about the individual on a, on a one-to-one kind of level and, and helping those develop. We've also talked about like, the, the change in need and skills, the need to reskill to, to adapt, and you know, the change of demographics, how we're going to work. I mean, for a HR leader or for a HR director, that's a lot to take in. What, where do they start? Where, where, would, where should someone start with these things? Yeah, it does sound overwhelming, doesn't it, at times? That, so for an HR leader, I think the first point is that none of this means that we are asking leaders in HR or leaders throughout the business to understand exactly the intricacies of someone's life. You know, okay. It's impossible to understand on an individu- individual basis exactly what people need, what their diversity indicators are, for example, which is another piece of research we do about... you know neurodiversity, how people's thinking styles are different, their family types. There are all sorts of different areas where where we all bring difference to work. And it's not necessarily a leader's role to try and predict that or to try and diagnose that. That can actually be um, a bit problematic. But what the new role for HR leaders and for leaders throughout organisations is, is to create that adult-to-adult environment where people can be honest about what they want their career to look like when people can take a lot more responsibility for their learning, for example. So there's some fantastic organizations providing learning platforms that shift HR's role from broker of training, so from a position where HR says, here are the 15 uh, pieces of learning that you need to do to be compliant in your role, to, be, mm-hmm. uh, to excel in your role, to here's a platform with lots of different learning resources that we've curated, we've, we've uh, um, got to the point where we know that they are credible and they are valuable Um, but also here's the opportunity to share learning between you so we are going to enable learning rather than than deliver all the learning to you Uh, and that means that individuals then have more responsibility for okay well I'm going to try out this different course or um, or perhaps I get a prompt to say people who have done well um, in my particular profession have done this course maybe I'm therefore more inclined to do it we've also seen some fascinating examples um, from well, Fantastic Consultancy Services is one and Westpac is another um, of organisations that enable people to just share their own learning. So as an employee, I'm no longer just the recipient of learning, but I'm also a teacher. Sounds like reverse mentoring to a degree. Exactly, yeah. And that I can upload content that I've learned that I want to share. Uh, 
that makes it much more peer-to-peer, -peer, that makes it much easier for people to see how they're building their intangible assets in that environment. And it's not just a case of, here's more specific learning to do much better in your current role, but without much ability to look beyond that. So you know, that's some of the, the kind of tangible assets people can do and things that people can do to change. Um, you know, how can, how can businesses kind of future-proof themselves in this changing world then as well? So, the, you know, the, it's kind of a process and it's, it's a slow-moving area, but what can people start to do? Well, it's a big one. So for organisations, I think the first point is to, to be able to access the insights around this area. That it's quite, it's a huge task and we know it because we spend all day, sure, every day yeah. in a research team looking at the future of work. But keeping up with these trends is a full-time job. So some organisations that have the resources have set up future work teams, which is fantastic. Um, other organisations just need to be able to access those insights. So are they... Are they part of a group of other companies that are also looking into this? Are they exchanging insights with other industries, with academics, with educational institutions, uh, with government bodies, with charities? Are they, getting, are they in the conversation, I'd say, is the first point. So if you're an HR leader, you spend very little time out there talking to peers in different industries, different organisations, about the trends impacting the future of work. That should be a warning sign. So I think I think the Change Board Conference is, you know, obviously a fantastic uh, step towards that. That learning from other peers, getting that information in the first place, and then really seeing it as crafting their own future of work. This isn't deterministic. These are trends that we're mapping, and demographies are quite a helpful one because you can broadly predict that if you have a cohort of people who are of this number of people who are 30 now you'll probably have them uh, 30 years later at 60. Um, so there's more predictability to a degree in demographic data but it really is about crafting the organization's future of work understanding what they want their value proposition to be for the talent they engage with for the communities they engage with um, and going from there. And on a more kind of personal level, or you know, through hotspots, I mean, how do you find your research received? You know, how how easy is it to get it out there and and get people engaged and get people listening to it? I think it's very easy to get people to listen to it. Is the <laughs> is the short answer? So I find it I don't find it difficult at all to have really fasc fascinating conversations with organisations. I think the the challenge is turning those insights into what do organisations actually do? It's really that that's the challenging part. Um, but it's something that that we facilitate quite often with organizations. So helping people distill the universe of the future of work into, okay, what does this mean for my company? Have we sat down and thought about how each of these trends might impact us if we project our organization forward 20 years perhaps, or even just 10 years, uh, what might our workforce look like? What might, uh, what might work look like? And, and how will we do it? So who will the people be? What will they be doing and how will they be doing it? And the three questions that I tend to ask organizations when we consult with them, when we do workshops, to really help think about what, it's not just being a recipient of the future of work and then responding. It's crafting that future of work and being on the front foot will be really important. And if it's not too much of a kind of a personal question, I mean, how do you see this impact on, on your own career, your own life, you know, how, how, how do you deal with this as an individual? Yeah, so I think uh, the first is that I don't really expect to retire. <laughs> so I have to, I have to uh, take How's that How does that feel? Yeah, I think that, uh, genuinely, I think when I was doing uh, some of the research with Linda on the 100-year life, it was quite an emotional journey. Sure. Um, so when we started out, I was looking at the data and thinking, oh my goodness, how on earth is this going to work for people of my generation? Um, and 
then as we progressed the research, then we saw the hopefulness of it and the excitement around it. Because let's face it, living for longer has got to be a good thing. Sure. We have to, as humans, be inventive enough to make the gift of longer life into a gift and not see it as a curse. I mean, that it's, it's a bizarre idea that we would look at longer life as something to dread. Um, I think on a personal level, what it's, it's woken me up to is what do I want my life to look like? And rather than just think, thinking about jobs as, as in a discrete way. And also thinking about the range of, of what I can bring in my future that's uniquely human. So when we think about technology impacting work, we talk often about uniquely human skills. So the skills that technology won't displace as readily. So things like collaboration, innovation, and so on. And when I thought about being a researcher, I was like, you know, actually this isn't, a f isn't even research isn't a future-proofed area. Okay. There is still uh, a lot of technological augment augmentation there that just knowing the information and being able to compile insights and um, and create new concepts that in itself isn't particularly future proofed what is future proofed is the storytelling around that how you engage individuals in that story how you engage organizations to sit up and take notice of it and feel empowered to do something differently so one example is that i developed a hobby of improvisational theater okay to get better at storytelling so that okay well if that's going to be a uniquely human skill, I've got to get my job is to build up a parallel skill set in how I communicate these insights, not just how I find them, which which lots of people can do and actually we'll see augmenta uh, computer augmentation doing increasingly. How do I get better at telling those stories and making them meaningful? So um, I spend at least three, four hours a week doing improvisational theatre classes and performing improv theatre, which is, uh, for those of you who haven't had the joy, uh, is going onto, <laughs> a going onto a stage without a script with between one other person and five other people and creating a story completely in the moment. So it means thinking very quickly on your feet. It means trusting your instincts. It means listening really well, because if you don't listen very well to your scene partner, you'll, you'll find yourself stuck. So it tests out all those very uniquely human skills that are crucial in, I think, future-proofing my own career. Emma, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You can hear more from Emma on the future work trends and the impact of the 100-year life when she speaks at our Future Talent Conference on the 22nd of March at the Royal Geographical Society in London. Our other speakers include Seleni Henry on his experiences of diversity in the media, Matthew Taylor on the impact of his review into modern working practices, and Alistair Campbell on mental health and well-being in work. Join 750 business leaders to discuss the future of work by booking now at www.ftconference.changeboard.com. For more stories like this, follow us on Twitter with the handle at changeboard or visit www.changeboard.com.